world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. If you're reading from the Bibles underneath your chairs, it's on page 998. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Titus 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can go ahead and be, be seated. As you uh, see before us, we are continuing our trek through Paul's letter to his co-worker, a man named Titus, um, who was asked to stay behind in an area of ministry in an in island nation called Crete. Paul could no longer stay there any longer, but uh, the work of the gospel needed to continue. And so Paul writes this letter to Titus, asking Titus to come in and to lead these brothers and sisters in Christ, these older men, these older women, these young men, these young women, these bond servants or slaves that were part of the Roman culture of the day. And what Paul is going to do now as he transitions into Titus chapter 2 is he's going to start laying out what it looks like for men and women who have been transformed by the good news of God's grace. Just what does practical living look like for these people? And so we're going to hit pause, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into Titus chapter 2, specifically focusing on um, these exhortations that Paul is going to give to the men who were in Crete. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and you call us to be sanctified by your truth. You call us to be conformed, to be shaped, to be challenged, to be matured by your word. So this morning, Father, as we turn our attention to how what we believe 
is connected and linked to how we behave, that God, you would come and you would grow us for the sake and the name of Jesus Christ. We believe in the power and the ability of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the power of God. And this is from every area of Scripture, so we ask that you would come and do so this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we, as I just said, before we took time to pray, um, this morning's sermon and next week's sermon are sort of going to be two parts that, that come together. Um, if you zoom out and look at Titus chapter 2, Paul is making a transition and he's going to start focusing on how the gospel actually informs the way we behave. When God's grace saves sinners, there is a way that we are to behave. There is right behavior flowing out of grace-transformed hearts so that when we walk, when we talk, when we live in the world and the time and the place that we find ourselves, we will be witnesses for Jesus Christ, not just because we profess certain things and speak certain things and use words in certain ways, but because our behavior comes along and it verifies and it upholds the actual profession that we are making. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we, we posed the question, when we first started Paul's letter to Titus, we started off our introduction to this letter by asking this question, how do people change? Like, how do people actually grow? Like, how are they transformed? How, how do they move from being sinners to being not sinners? How do they move to being saved? And we made the observation that we have to pose this question because the world we live in is genuinely broken by sin. We said sin is an equal opportunity destroyer. It invades, it pervades everything. And in some way, everything around us is just simply not the way it was meant to be because sin has ruined it. Sin has corrupted it from ourselves, our own hearts, to relationships, to work, to speech, to marriage, to roommates, to co-work, whatever it might be. Every sphere, every avenue of the world we live in has been on the receiving end of sin's corrupting effect. But we also said a couple of weeks ago that in the midst of this brokenness that sin brings to our world, we really do have hope. It is possible for sin-sick people to experience genuine change, genuine transformation. And we said the antidote to sin's brokenness, it's not found in ourselves. It's not found in our own ability to produce. We don't rest on ourselves as the hope of salvation. No, what we do is we see that the hope for sin-sick people is found in the hope of eternal life himself, Christ Jesus, our Savior. When sinners are washed clean by the blood of Jesus, they genuinely find grace from God and they can genuinely find peace with God. And we said this is the good news message of God's grace. God accepts sinners not because we've earned it, not because we have deserved it, rather because he gives it to us freely at Christ's expense. We are the ones who receive newness of life where the power of God's grace transforms us from the inside out. 
We don't earn God's grace by cleaning up the exterior or hoping external behavioral modification will somehow have enough change on us on the inside so that day we stand before God, we can say, see all my good works, doesn't this earn grace from you? Paul says that's not what grace is all about. Grace is an inside-out transformation. The blood of Christ comes and it completely transforms us in who we are, the way we think, and the way we speak. But when we turned our attention a little bit further into Titus chapter 1, we noticed that there was a problem in Crete. There was a problem within that church that was placed there in Crete. And it was this. The problem was the disconnect between what people believe and how they behave. In Crete, we said, there was a group of false teachers who had abandoned God's grace. And as a result, they began to cling to religious rules and the commands of men who had turned away from the truth. So if you remember, we said this, that these teachers, what they should have been doing is basically using like a bear hug grip on the good news of God's grace. As teachers, they were to cling to a singular truth. We are great sinners and Jesus is a great Savior. But instead of clinging to that truth and letting that be the nucleus of everything they did, they freely loosened their grip on the good news of God's grace and they began to cling to other truths. Jewish myths, it said, and commands of men that really weren't in the word of God calling people to come and obey these things. In essence, the mantra of these false teachers was this. Listen, just modify your behavior. Follow a certain set of religious rules made by men. And if you do this, then you will eventually be good with God. Their whole approach was an outside-in approach to God. You see that? They were saying, listen, clean up the outside and hopefully the The cleanliness of all these external things that you're doing will hopefully start to press in and change you on the inside. They were relying on man-centered change to produce genuine inward transformation. But ultimately, their lives proved that this approach was powerless, that this approach, this outside-in approach, did not truly work. For Paul says down in chapter 1, verse 16, that ultimately the men, the teachers who are teaching this way, they profess to know God, but they ultimately deny Him by their works. So they had a message on their mouth, but when you just step back and you looked at the panorama of their life, they were saying right things, but there was a disconnect between what they believed and the behavior that consistently and habitually marked their life. So where their behavior was actually denying their belief, for the grace-transformed men and women in Crete, their belief was to actually fuel their behavior. So you look to the false teachers and Paul says, listen, their message is debunked because all you have to do is just look at their life. They're saying, we believe this, but their belief was having no legitimate effect on their behavior. The transformation they were proclaiming to have in their hearts was not working and flushing itself out in the everyday aspects of life. 
And so as you rotate out of Titus chapter 1 and then roll into Titus chapter 2, Paul is going to basically say this. Listen, this is what it looks like for your belief to actually fuel and inform your behavior. And so for this reason, Titus was to remain in Crete. He was to remain in Crete in order to help these men and women see that there is an an indissoluble link between what we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we are to behave as a result of God's grace transforming us from the inside out. And so as Paul begins chapter 2, he starts by showing what grace-fueled behavior looks like for a leader. What does grace-fueled behavior look like for a leader? Look at verse 1. Brian, I asked him to do this, and he did an excellent job last week. I asked him to basically take verse 1 and preach a sermon on it, and he did that. But as you look there, what Paul is doing in Titus chapter 2 is there's three distinct sections where he talks to Titus and asks Titus to lead in certain ways, to be a leader, to be a pastor there in Crete, lining up what he believes, what he teaches with a life that is in accord with what he believes. So in verse 1, Paul says to Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So you have these other guys in Crete who were not teaching what accords with sound doctrine. They loosened their grip on the sound doctrine and their lives accordingly were not lining up, but Paul says to Titus, you are to live in a different way. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Jump down to verse 7. He continues by saying, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity. Show dignity. Show sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may not be put to shame having nothing evil to say about you. And you go all the way down to verse 15. Paul continues by saying, declare these things. These things being everything in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Declare these things. Take these up. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So since there were false teachers in Crete that were marked by a disconnect between what they believed and how they behaved, Paul calls Titus to stay in Crete and basically do the exact opposite. These guys are doing this. Your job, Titus, is to basically look at them and go, if they're doing this, there's a pretty good chance it's wrong, and so you need to go and do the opposite, Titus. Fueled by God's saving grace in his own life, Titus was to teach what accords with sound doctrine But not only that, he was to be a model of good works. So the way the false teachers in in Crete were going to be silenced was through the example of Titus himself. So not only would he silence them as he held to the sound doctrine of the gospel, but he would also silence them as he just simply modeled a life of good works which was fueled by God's grace in his life. And the natural outcome is that Titus would be a shining example of what grace-fueled behavior actually looks like. So in his teaching, we see that he is to model good works, verse 7, in all respects be a model of good works, let good works come along and corroborate what you are teaching, 
as you teach what accords with sound doctrine. But then he goes back to his teaching in verse 7 and says, listen, in your teaching, show integrity. So instead of selling out for shameful gain like these other guys have done and teaching what ought not to be, to be taught, Titus was to have a strict regard for the truth. Unlike the false teachers who were deceived with sick doctrine, Titus was to have sound doctrine that was robust, doctrine that was healthy, doctrine that was pure. In his teaching, Titus was also to show dignity, show integrity, but now show dignity. The idea wrapped up in that word dignity is just simply this idea of seriousness. Be serious about the things that you're teaching. Understand that there is a weightiness. Again, the false teachers lacked dignity. They lacked seriousness in their teaching. Again, you go back into Titus chapter 1, and we see that they were described as empty talkers. They were just blabbermouths. They were constantly speaking and shooting out words, but their words lacked a genuine gravity to them. It was almost like it was just trivial, something to easily be done because it's just sort of what we're supposed to do. And Paul looks at Titus and says, no, don't be an empty talking blabbermouth who is quick to teach anything for gain. So as Titus taught, he was to teach with an air of seriousness. And as he did so, it would begin to undermine the silliness that marked the false teachers. Lastly, Paul just simply calls Titus to show sound speech that cannot be condemned. So have integrity, have dignity, but also just be sound, be healthy in your speech that cannot be condemned. He was to simply just teach the truth in a way that his teaching couldn't be criticized in his words and through his example so that no one could have any cause to deny the validity of his message. See, teaching with sound speech was the exact opposite of what the false teachers were doing. They were obviously very content with saying the right things like on Sunday morning, but then Monday through Saturday, the behavior of their life was giving cause to look at their lives and go, man, I I know what the guy's saying. He says it with a lot of arm movement and waving on Sunday morning, but then when you go and you look at his life Monday through Saturday, his behavior completely undermines and denies everything he said on Sunday morning. Their speech was unsound. It genuinely gave cause for people to put them to shame, condemning them and having evil things to say about them. Paul says, Titus, when you go into town, fueled by God's grace in your life, do not operate in the same way. In the end, when you jump down to verse 15, Titus is to simply declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one dis regards you. Now, what I love about these verses is the way that Paul spells out the effect that grace-fueled leadership is going to have in the church in Crete. As Titus holds to the trustworthy word of the gospel, as he teaches with integrity, teaches with dignity, teaches with sound speech, the effect is that the opponents there in Crete will be put to shame having nothing evil to say. In other words, Paul is calling Titus to see this reality. When how Titus behaves actually lines up with what he believes, his life is going to bear witness to God's grace to all of those who are around him. 
See, in some way or another, all of us men are called to be Titus-esque in our leadership. Now, it's true, most of us are never going to find ourselves in a form of pastoral leadership, like Titus found himself in a form of pastoral leadership. But as men, we are all called to lead others just as Titus led others. So maybe it's you as a husband leading your wife, leading your children. Maybe you're a leader at work amongst your coworkers. Maybe you have roommates or friends who look to you for some form of leadership or whoever it might be. The fact remains that how we behave as men who are to lead as God has called us to lead, how we behave is to flow from and to be fueled by what we believe. Now, the unfortunate fact is that it is very possible for us to lead in such a way where others can legitimately say something evil about us because we become blind to that disconnect between what we say on Sunday morning and what we nod our heads to like community group night, but then we go throughout the rest of the week with behavior that does not align with what we believe. And so one of the best questions we can ask ourselves, one of the best things we can do is to ask this question, does my leadership reflect grace-fueled behavior when i'm in the home does my behavior align with the gospel the way i'm speaking to my wife does it align with the gospel the way i'm training my children does it align with the gospel of god's grace in my life the way i'm a manager at work the way i'm a mommy at home the way that I'm a coworker, a team leader, a data entry, nurse, doctor, fitness instructor, whatever it might be, the question I think we're most supposed to do is look into these verses and go, okay, this is a chance for me to evaluate. I know what I confess. I know what I believe. I read the scriptures and I say this, I have been transformed by the grace of God. I have been saved by his grace. And then for us to zoom out a little bit and to take stock of our life, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act and go, does my life exhibit behavior that is in line with what I say that I believe? I think it's a brilliant question for us to consider, to ask in all respects, am I genuinely a model of good works? Not because I'm trying to earn something from God, but because my life of good works is simply flowing from the inside out change that God has brought to me the death of Jesus Christ? Are my words of instruction, are my words of counsel marked by integrity, marked by dignity, marked by sound speech? Or does my leadership look more like the false teachers where I profess one thing with my mouth only to deny my be- that profession by my behavior? So as Paul lays out the indissoluble link between belief and behavior, he first highlights the grace-fueled behavior of a leader. But then Paul turns his attention to the men within the church, and he simply calls the men to see the connection of what grace-fueled behavior looks like for older men and what it looks like in the lives of younger men. 
So you look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. Jump down to verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I love it, man. Don't overwhelm the younger guy, man. Just give him one thing. The dude just needs to be self-controlled. So you got self-control there for younger men and older men, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. So after he has laid the groundwork for Titus and the way his behavior is to line up with God's work of grace in his life, Paul then gives different set of instructions for different categories of people. Now again, we're going to come back and we're going to look next Sunday at older women, young women, and those bond servants or those slaves over there in verses 9 and 10, but this morning I want us to just look at this idea of older men and younger men. Paul turns his attention to these, these two categories within the church. And so as Titus leads the way, going into Crete, putting what remained into order, he is to teach sound doctrine, and the implication is that as he begins to teach sound doctrine to these groups, modeling a life of good work for these groups, he is to specifically do something toward the older men. He is to call them to behave in a certain way in line with God's grace that has come and transformed them from the inside out. Titus needs to teach them, be sober-minded, be dignified, be self-controlled. So as sober-minded men, they're to be level-headed men, Men who have walked the path of life a little longer than most, therefore they're to have a certain gravity to their character. Length of time has sharpened their perspective, and since they have less days ahead of them than they used to, this man is crystal clear on what really matters in life. Sound doctrine has genuinely shaped him. He's walked with Jesus for a really long time. And his behavior reflects a life lived for God. We've seen older men like this. They're just not silly. They're not just sentimental. They're not just those older men you write off. You're around them. You're like, man, like this guy has walked the path of life for a while. And there's like a gravitas to him. Like you just want to be around him because his head is screwed on straight. He's genuinely sober-minded. He's a level-headed older man. And you're like, man, like whatever this guy did in life to arrive at this place, I'm looking at him going like, I want to be like him. And so Paul is calling Titus to call the older men to reflect this sort of behavior in their life. Not only sober-minded, they're to be dignified men. Men who are worthy of respect. This man who is dignified, this older man, what he does is he spends his days going after those things that are noble and valuable and worthy and pure. Because he's dignified in this way, there's an honor that comes to him as as an older man. But we also see that older men are to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. And so instead of his passions and desires being in control of him, this grace fueled man is genuinely in control of his desires and passions. He's walked with Jesus for a many, many years. And as he's walked with Jesus, 
one thing has become very plain to him. Jesus and the full and forever pleasures that are found in Jesus, they really, really, really are sweet. And so as he's continuing to walk with Jesus, he starts to become a model to the younger men around him because people are looking at him and going, man, like this guy just loves Jesus. He talks about Jesus. He exudes Jesus. He's genuinely the things of this world are growing strangely dim as he feasts on the pleasures of Christ. Sin is losing its stranglehold on this man. It's not that he's perfect. It's not that he never sins. But he genuinely stands as a model of a man who is self-controlled. Not because he's just got more like internal fortitude than other people. But it's because he's genuinely in love with his Savior. And because he knows that Jesus is the fountain of all pleasure... He refuses to be conformed to this world. And so he controls himself saying, I'm not going to run with my desires and my appetites unchecked. I'm going to check them by God's grace and God's power within me so that I can truly feast on the one thing that delivers pleasure, Jesus himself. So Paul then just turns around and he drives his point home by revealing what actually enables this sort of behavior. Right? The question comes like, so how does this man walk and behave in such a way where he's sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Well, Paul says the the brother's just sound. He's healthy. He's sound in faith because he has a genuine relationship with God. He's sound in love because he has genuine love for others because he has been genuinely loved by God in Christ. And he's genuinely sound or healthy in steadfastness. Ultimately, because their hope is in the reward to come. These older men, they just run the race with endurance. They fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. And so when you look at this older man, like he's a marathon man. Like, right, he's not running the short little sprints and then just petering out. No, what he's doing is from the moment he got saved, he has this sort of mentality. Listen, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and it is a full and forever hope. And so what I'm doing is I'm going to live my life with a marathon mindset so that when highs come, Jesus is still good. When lows come, Jesus is still good. Why? Because my hope and my treasure is and in the things of this world. Like he genuinely realizes, my hope is in Christ. And Paul understands that in a church, we need men like this. Do we not? We need older men who can model the example of, listen, young blood, when you're 20 and you think like hell's breaking open on you, you need to know that you can survive and be a 60-year-old who loves Jesus. When pain and suffering are breaking your house apart as a 40-year-old, you need to know that the 80-year-old was in the exact same spot. But somehow, by God's grace, he still finds himself in the place where Jesus is still sweet. That's why I'm praying this prayer, and my prayer is that you would pray along with me. We are severely deficient in the older men category in our church. We are. Like we, I'm not, this is no dig. Like we have one, Tom, Pastor Tom. Now, Tom is an example of this. He genuinely is. And I wish he could be here this morning. He's downstairs serving in the nest, which is even more an example of this because he loves Jesus. He loves little children. 
But man, I long for the day when our demographic explodes the boundaries of the 25 to 35-year-old with like two and a half kids and then some. Because we need older men in our church. Now, next week, we're going to be talking about older women. And we need more older women just as we need more older men. Because there's some things that older women can teach that Pastor John can't quite lay, lay hand on. Because I'm not old and I'm not a woman. All right? That disqualifies me in two ways. But there is a, a beauty that is found in a Titus 2 mindset when Paul says, listen, if the church was just filled with a bunch of young, reckless men, it would be really, really bad. And so what we need are older men who are marked by a level-headedness. Their head is screwed on straight. They're genuinely dignified. They are self-controlled. They're sound in faith. They're sound in love and sound in steadfastness. Why? Because Jesus has completely ruined them and transformed them and changed them from the inside out. Things are growing strangely dim. Jesus is pleasurable and sweet. And he is still saying this as an 80-year-old. Just as he was when he was 60, just as he was as a 50, 40, and on down the line. So then Paul, after this, he just simply turns to the younger men and he just says, Listen, you guys need to be self-controlled as well. The idea is the same as the older men who are self-controlled. Listen, you are not to be a slave to your desires and to your appetites. You are to be one fueled by God's grace who is leading and in lead of your desires and your appetites. Now, here's what I find interesting. When you get down to the very end of verse 6, and it says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. What's interesting is that in the three times that Paul has addressed the idea of behavior for men in the church in Crete, he has highlighted the characteristic of self-control three times. So if you go back to chapter 1, when Paul starts talking about the qualifications for grace-centered elders, grace-centered pastors, he says this, they're to be hospitable, lovers of good, and self-controlled. Then when he talks about grace-transformed older men, they are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. And then just as we saw younger men who have been saved by God's grace, they have one thing in common that is said about them, they too are also to be self-controlled. So this is the common denominator among the men who have been transformed by grace. Every one of them is to be self-controlled. Now it's important to remember that when Titus is talking about this language of being self-controlled, when he's saying, listen, sober-minded, dignified, sound in faith, Titus, teach with integrity, dignity, all these things, what he's not doing is bringing into Crete some sort of first century self-help manual. He isn't calling these men to look within themselves so they can find the power to be more self-controlled. This is not what he is doing. Rather, he's calling these men to lift their eyes to see that the power to be self-controlled lies in the grace of God that teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. If There's a reason why I had Meredith read all of Titus chapter 2, and you can go home and study this today. There are 10 verses devoted to this is what behavior looks like. Verses 11 through 14 are the why. This is the what you're supposed to do. Then the question comes like, well, why am I supposed to live this way? And the answer is down there in verses 11 through 14. We're going to preach on this in a couple of weeks. But the why lands in this. God's grace has saved you. 
God's grace in you has genuinely transformed you, and God's grace is the power. Elder is the power. Older man is the power. Younger man, by which you rest and are fueled so that you can live a life of self-control. Now listen, the reason why I believe that Paul highlights the grace-fueled behavior of leaders, of older men and younger men, is for this reason. Because self-control is profoundly countercultural in our world today, especially among men. Self-control among men is profoundly countercultural. We see that it was countercultural in Crete. A few weeks ago, we saw a Cretan prophet who described his own people like this. Cretans, he says, they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Not a happy picture. So according to this guy, his name was Epimenides, as he looked around the culture around him, he says there's three things that basically describe the people within our culture. They're liars, they're evil, they're lazy, and they're gluttonous. And so Cretan culture was filled with people who did not control their speech. They were liars. They did not control their emotions. They were evil beasts. They did not control their appetites. They were lazy gluttons. So Paul, having his finger on the pulse of Cretan culture, says this. Listen. One of the ways Cretan culture is going to get a glimpse of God's saving grace is when grace-transformed men live out the grace-fueled behavior of self-control in their lives. So Paul's saying, listen, the gospel is not a good news message just singularly for us. It's not get saved, sit on the sidelines, and let no one see the transformation within you. No, he says, listen, as you, Cretan leader, Cretan older man, Cretan younger man, as you're just going about living out your days, one of the ways that you are going to magnify, like with a, with a bullhorn, proclaiming the grace of God is just by simply going out and living a life that is different from others, Because God's grace is genuinely fueling you to be able to live a life that is different from others. When every other man in Cretan culture has abandoned self-control and you live a life of genuine grace-fueled self-control, you will stand out as different. And when you stand out as different, you will then start to become a witness for the good news of God's grace in your life. Listen, dirty old men and reckless younger men who profess to know God but deny Him by their works, they don't change the world around them. We make fun of dirty old men. There's a movie that just came out in the past couple of years called Dirty Old Men. The point was go to the movie and laugh. That's just the way they are. Ha, ha, ha. Paul says if you're a believer here, and you're an older man, and you profess to know God, but the behavior of your life marks you as a dirty old man, he says, you've got to disconnect, brother. If you're a younger man here, and your life is marked by recklessness, not self-control, 
where you profess to know Jesus, but then every, almost every avenue of your life is consistently and habitually marked by a behavior of not self-control. He just simply says there's a disconnect there. People will change, and culture is transformed, not when we conform ourselves to culture, but when God's grace empowers us and compels us and fuels us and encourages us to live in a way that is genuine and true to our God because God is doing it within us. That is how people will begin to see God's grace and get a picture of God's grace. This is how culture begins to transform. And just as this way of living was countercultural in Crete, it's just as countercultural today in Springfield. Listen, plain and simple, our world values self fulfillment instead of self denial. What's the message that you see in commercials portrayed to man over and over again? Listen, if you want it, just go and buy it. If it feels good, just do it. If a desire is strong, give in to it. If you want to click that image, go for it. It's your life. Self-control, self-denial, who does that? Seemingly everything in our culture is stacked against the idea of self-control. But I think one of the things we can learn here from Titus chapter 2, specifically as grace-fueled behavior for leaders, for older men and younger men, is this, that when grace transformed men bear the fruit of self-control, there is something compelling about this. There's something compelling about this. And really, I just believe this is what the point that Paul is driving at. Once we are saved by God's grace, we are then sent by God to be hope dealers, dealing the hope of eternal life found in Jesus Christ alone. And when grace transformed men truly stand out as different in this world because their behavior lines up with God's work in their life, this becomes a compelling witness that God uses over and again to draw people to himself. So men, when you're at work this coming week and that opportunity, that opportunity comes. And like you know what's coming. Like you say, like you can see it, man. Like I'm going to find myself in this situation where my behavior is going to have an opportunity to proclaim the message of Jesus in this moment. What are you going to do in that moment? My hope is that what you'll do is go, God, help me. Grant me the necessary strength. Fortify my heart. Equip me to be an ambassador for you. Give me the courage to speak and to behave as I ought to speak and as I ought to behave in that moment because these men will not see a picture of Jesus if I buckle and fold and conform to the world around me. But God, help me, please, to speak and to behave in such a way to where I can model Jesus in front of them so that I will be a counter-cultural, grace-transformed example of what Jesus can do in the life of a man. Let's pray. Father, would you do a great work in, in our church, specifically in the lives of the men here in this church? God, there's just a lot of things in In my mind, God, I pray and I echo the prayer of what I've prayed before, Father. I pray that you would grow the demographic of our church. I pray that you would expand, Father, the 
the age of ages of men within this church and that you would bring older men who have a Titus 2 mentality into our midst so that way we can begin to see what does it look like to live a grace-transformed life over the decades and over the years and over various seasons of life. Father, I pray that you would raise up a legion of Delta men who are not only transformed by God's grace, but who genuinely exhibit that indissoluble link between what we believe and how we behave. I pray that you would galvanize this truth in us that Jesus truly is more pleasurable than the world and help us to see the beauty of grace-fueled self-control so that others can know Jesus. God, have your way in us this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen.